Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. So we are now back on Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Chapter 52, which I'm actually going to do in two parts because this chapter is 30 plus pages long. So we're going to start with Chapter 52, The Anglo-Saxon Guilds. A guild signified among the Saxons a fraternity or sodality or brotherhood united together for the accomplishment by the cooperative exertions of the members of some predetermined purpose. The word is derived from the Anglo-Saxon verb gilden, to pay, and refers to the fact that every member of the guild was required to give something to its support. Hence, Cowell defines guilds to be fraternities originally contributing sums towards a common stock. Assuming that the characteristic of a guild organization is that it is a society of men united together for mutual assistance in the gaining of an object, or for the cultivation of friendship, or for the observance of religious duties, we may say that the guild has, under some of these aspects, existed in all civilized countries from the earliest of ages. The priesthood of Egypt was a fraternity containing in its organization much that resembles the more modern guild, the priests possessing peculiar privileges and forming a body separated from the rest of the nation by the right of making their own laws and electing their own members, who were received into what may be appropriately called the sacerdotal guild by certain ceremonies of initiation. The trades and handicrafts were divided into their various professions. Thus, the artificers and the boatmen of the Nile were each a separate class, and as the practice of a trade was made hereditary, being handed down from father to son, and was restricted to certain families, we may well suppose that each of these classes made up a guild. We may remark, in passing, that while the handicraftsmen and traders were generally held by the higher orders among the Egyptians in low repute, the art of building seems to have occupied an honored place in the national estimation. While we find no record on the funeral monuments of any of the other working classes, the names of architects alone appear in the inscriptions with those of priests, warriors, judges, and chiefs of provinces, the only ranks to which the honor of a funeral record was permitted. The Aranos among the Greeks was in every minute respect the analog or twin of the guild, not perhaps the same thing, but bearing a marked likeness to it. Donegal defines it to be a society under certain rules and regulations, having a fund contributed by the members, formed for various purposes, such as succoring indigent members. Clubs or societies of this kind, established for charitable or convivial purposes, and sometimes for both, were very common at Athens and were also found in other cities of Greece. These Grecian guilds were founded on the principle of mutual relief. If a member was reduced to poverty or was in temporary distress for money, he applied to the Eranos or guild, and the relief required was given by the members. Sometimes it was considered as a loan to be repaid when the borrower was in better circumstances. The Eranos met at stated periods, generally once a month, had its peculiar regulations, was presided over by an officer styled the Aranarchies and the Araniasti, 
or members paid each their monthly dues. There does not really appear to have been any material difference between the organization of these sodalities or brotherhoods and the Saxon and medieval social guilds. It is scarcely necessary, after the description that has already been given of the Roman colleges of artificers, to say that they were analogous or similar to the craft guilds. Indeed, it is a part of the hypothesis maintained in the present work that the latter derived, directly or indirectly, the suggestion of their peculiar form as associated craftsmen from the former. The agape, or love feasts, of the early Christians, though at first established for the holding of a religious rite, later became guild-like in their character, as they were sustained by the gifts and dues of the members, and funds were distributed for the relief of widows, orphans, and the poorer brethren. Indeed, they are supposed by writers upon the church to have imitated the Grecian Erinoi. The government looked upon them as secret societies, and they were for that reason forbidden by law. Brentano, who has written a learned introduction to Toulman Smith's English Guilds, published by the Early English Text Society, is disposed to trace the origin of guilds to the feasts of the old German tribes from Scandinavia, which were also called guilds. Among the German tribes, all events that especially related to the family, such as births, marriages, and deaths, were celebrated by sacrificial feasts in a family reunion. Similar feasts took place on certain public occasions and anniversaries, which often afforded an opportunity for the preparing of plans for piracy and plunder by one tribe or another. We are not inclined to trace the origin of the Saxon and English guilds to so low and decayed a source, and we subscribe to the opinions expressed by Wilda, one of the ablest of the German writers on this subject, who could not find anything of the true nature of the guild in these Scandinavian feasts of the family. Hartwig, who also has studied this point, agrees with Wilda. However, it is very evident that the fundamental or basic sentiment of the guild, that is, the desire to establish fraternal relations for mutual aid and protection, was not peculiar to the Saxons. It may rather be thought of as a human sentiment, arising from the innate or inborn knowledge of his own condition, which makes a man aware of his infirmity and weakness in isolation, and causes him to seek for strength in association with his fellow man. The same type, therefore, if not the exact form of the guild, has appeared in almost all civilized nations, even at the remotest periods of their history. Wherever men may accustom themselves to meet on stated occasions, to celebrate some appointed anniversary or festival and to eat of a common meal, to break bread together, that by this regular communion a spirit of fraternity may be established, and every member may feel that upon the association with which he is thus united he may depend on for relief of his necessities or protection of his interests. Such an association, sodality, brotherhood, or fraternity, call it by whatever name you may like, will be in substantial nature a guild. Wilda thinks that the peculiar character of the guilds was derived from the Christian principle of love, and that they actually originated in the monastic unions, where every member shared the benefits of the whole community in good works and prayers, into the advantages on which union laymen were afterward admitted. The unsoundness of this theory is evident from the fact that the same characteristic of mutual aid existed in the pagan nations long before the advent of Christianity, and was presented in those sodalities which represent the form of the modern guild. The admission of Wilda and Hartwig that the early Saxon guilds were so tinctured or affected with the superstitious customs of the pagan sacrificial feasts, and that the church had to labor with vigor and for a long time to destroy them, tends to prove that we must look beyond the monasteries for the true origin of the guild. 
We are inclined, therefore, to credit them to that spirit of associated labor and union of refreshment which had existed in the Roman colleges of artificers, where, as has been shown, there existed that organized union of interest which continued to be displayed in the guilds. Of course, we need not aver that the guilds were the legitimate and uninterrupted successors of the Roman colleges, following along an unbroken chain of events and of closest relations. But we will say that the suggestion of the advantages to be derived from an association in work, regulated by ordinances that had been agreed on, governed by officers who might judiciously direct the exercise of skill and the employment of labor, the result of all of which was the combination of interest and the growth of a fraternal feeling, was suggested by these Roman institutions, and more especially adopted by the craft guilds, which at a later period in the Middle Ages directed all the architectural laborers in every country in Europe. Many authors have traced the origin of these craft guilds to the Roman colleges. Brentano does not absolutely deny this claim, but he thinks it needs to be proved historically by its defenders. He believes it more probable that they descended from the companies into which an episcopal and royal towns, governed by bishop or king as the case may be, the bond handicraftsmen of the same trade were ranged under the superintendence of an official, or that they took their origin from a common subjection to police control or from common obligations to pay certain taxes or imposts. We find in Germany that these communities existed under the control of bishops. Arnold, in his Constitutional History of the German Free Cities, describes one at Worms in the 11th century. To the manner of the bishop were attached, among other dependents, a class of villains or bondsmen called Dagoardi. These were divided into colony, or workmen on the country manor, and operari, or handicraftsmen, who were ranged according to their trades into several unions or societies. From these persons, the continental guilds of the Middle Ages are supposed in error to have been derived. Still, when their bondage ceased, these societies may have developed themselves into free guilds. But the free guilds existed before, and the bond unions enforced by authority of bishops must have been organized simply for the convenience of the employer. There could not have been in any of them in any peculiar characteristics of the free and independent guild. But even if this speculative notion of Brentano, that the guilds were derived from the enforced association of the Episcopal and Royal Bond Handcraftsmen, were admitted to be correct, it would be only lengthening the chain connecting them with the Roman colleges by the insertion of another link. We should have in that case to look at these Roman sodalities for the idea of union and concerted action, which in either of those instances must have influenced the combination of handicraftsmen. However, Brentano at once gives up the views which he had just advanced. He admits that they deserve no further consideration because Wilda has shown that the craft guilds did not spring from subjection, but arose from the freedom of the handicraft class. Now it is precisely at this point that the craft guilds most resemble the Roman colleges. Founded originally in the earliest days of Rome for the express purpose of giving to the working classes a separate and independent place in the public polity and powers, they preserved this independence to the latest times and fostered the spirit of freedom which sprang naturally from it. Their spirit of freedom and independence indeed often borrowed upon excess. Thus they were watched and feared in the latter days of the Republic and during the Empire, because their love of freedom sometimes led them to start conspiracies against the government, which they supposed had the design of upsetting or lessening their rights. To protect these privileges and to preserve this freedom, they instituted the office of patrons, men of distinction and influence, not of their trade, but selected from the order of patricians, the aristocrats, who were to be the preservers of their franchises or charters. 
There is abundant historical evidence that the system of guilds was well known to the Anglo-Saxons. Toulman Smith, to whom we are indebted for the collection of guild charters of a later date, says that English guilds, as a system of widespread practical institutions, are older than any kings of England. They are told of in the books that contain the oldest relics of English laws. The old laws of King Alfred, of King Ina, of King Athelstan, of King Henry I, reproduce still older laws in which the universal existence of guilds is treated as a well-known fact, and in which it is taken to be a matter of course that everyone belonged to some guild. As population increased, guilds multiplied, and thus, while the beginnings of the older guilds are lost in the dimness of time and remain quite unknown, the beginnings of the later ones took place in methods and with accompanying forms that have been recorded. But it is not upon those laws alone that we have to depend for proof of the antiquity of the Saxon guilds. The records of a few of the old guilds still remain and show that the idea of association for mutual assistance, which is the very spirit of the guild organization, was common at least 12 centuries ago among our Saxon ancestors. Among the laws of Ina, who reigned from year 688 to 725, are two which relate to the liability of the brethren of a guild in the case of slaying a thief. King Alfred also refers to the duties of the guild when he decrees that in the case of a crime, the brothers of the guild shall pay a portion of the fine. The Judicia Civitatis Lundonae, or Statutes of the City of London, contains several laws for the regulation of the various guilds and outlining the duties of its members. The Snyden Guild, or Young Men's Guild, is mentioned by Stowe as existing in the time of King Edgar, who granted the liberty of a guild forever to thirteen knights or soldiers well-beloved of the king and the realm for service by them done, which requested to have a certain portion of land on the east part of the city left desolate and forsaken by the inhabitants by reason of too much servitude. Thirteen was a favorite number in the religious guilds. Duquesne explains the reason in a quotation which he makes from an epistle to the Church of Utrecht, wherein it is said that a fraternity commonly called a guild was formed consisting of twelve men to represent the twelve apostles, and one woman to represent the Virgin Mary. The text of the writing or charter by which Orkey instituted a guild at Abbotsbury has been preserved. Orkey was the Huskarl, or one of the household troops, of Edward the Confessor, and there is a charter of that king in existence whereby he gives permission to Toll, the widow of Orkey, or Irk, to leave at death her lands to the monastery at the same place where the guild was established. The original charter of Orkey's guild, as written in the Anglo-Saxon language, with a generally correct translation into English, has been printed by Thorpe in his Diplomatorium, as it is one of the earliest of the Saxon charters that exists, and as it will be interesting in enabling the reader to compare its provisions with those of the later guilds on the pattern of which the Masonic guilds or fraternities were formed, it is here presented entire. It must, however, be observed that it was not a craft, but a religious guild, and hence we find no allusion to the privileges and obligations of the former, which always composed a part of their written regulations. So following is from Orkey's Guild at Abbotsbury. And this is all quotes. Here is made known in this writing that Orkey has given the guild hall and the place at Abbotsbury to the praise of God and St. Peter, and for the guildship to possess now and henceforth of him and his consort for long remembrance. Whoso shall avert this, let him account with God at the great day of judgment. Now these are the covenants which Orkey and the guild brothers at Abbotsbury have chosen to the praise of God and the honor of St. Peter and their soul's need. This is first, 
three nights before St. Peter's Mass from every guild brother one penny or one penny worth of wax, whichever be most needed in the monastery, and on the Mass's eve one broad loaf, well raised and well sifted, for our common alms, and five weeks before Peter's Mass day, let each guild brother contribute one guildster full of clean wheat, and let that be rendered within two days, on pain of forfeiting the entrance fee, which is three sesters of wheat. And let the wood be rendered within three days after the corn contribution from every full guild brother, one brethren of wood, and two from those who are not full brothers, or let him pay one guildester of corn. And he who undertakes a charge and does it not satisfactorily, let him be liable in his entrance fee, and let there be no remission. And let the guild brother who abuses another within the guild with serious intent make atonement to all the society to the amount of his entrance, and afterward to the man whom he abused, as he may settle it. And if he will not submit to compensation, let him forfeit the fellowship and every other privilege of the guild. And let him who introduces more men than he ought, without leave of the steward and the purveyors, pay his entrance. And if death befall any one in our society, let each guild brother contribute one penny at the corpse for the soul, or pay according to three guild brothers. And if any one of us be sick within sixty miles, then we shall find fifteen men who shall fetch him, and if he be dead, thirty, and they shall bring him to the place which he desired in his life. And if he die in the vicinity, let the steward have warning to what place the corpse is to go, and let the steward then warn the guild brothers, as many as ever he can ride to or send to, that they come thereto and worthily attend the corpse and convey it to the monastery and earnestly pray for the soul. That will rightly be called a guild law, which we thus do, and it will be seem it well both before God and before the world, for we know not which of us shall soonest depart hence. Now we believe, through God's support, that this aforesaid agreement will benefit us all, if we rightly hold it. Let us fervently pray to God Almighty that he have mercy on us, and also to his holy apostle St. Peter, that he intercede for us and make our way clear to everlasting rest. Because for love of him we have gathered this guild. He has the power in heaven that he may let into heaven whom he will, and refuse whom he will not. As Christ himself said to him in his gospel, Peter, I deliver to thee the key of heaven's kingdom, and whatsoever thou wilt have bound on earth, that shall be bound in heaven. And whatever thou wilt have unbound on earth, that shall be unbound in heaven. Let us have as trust and hope in him that he will ever have care of us here in this world, and after our departure hence be a help to our souls. May he bring us to everlasting rest. These covenants, which in later guild charters are called ordinances, and by the Mason Guild's constitutions, were very clearly defined the objects of the association. These were not connected with the pursuit of any handicraft, but were altogether of a religious and charitable nature. Infirm brethren were supported, the dead were to be buried, prayers were to be said for the repose of their souls, and religious services were to be performed. There was an annual meeting on the Feast of St. Peter, and regulations were made for the collection of alms on that day for the benefit of the poor. A special attention was paid to the preservation of fraternal relations of mutual kindness between the members. We see in all these particulars the germ of those similar regulations which are met with in the constitutions of the Freemasons compiled in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, and which were, the necessary changes having been made, finally developed in the regulations of the speculative Freemasons in the 18th century. 
The substance of the regulations of this, as well as of two other guilds established about that same time, one at Exeter and the third at Cambridge, was the binding together in close fraternal union of man to man, which was sometimes fortified and impressed by the taking of oaths for the faithful performance of mutual help. The charter of the Thanes Guild at Cambridge has been published by both Thorpe and Kemble from a Catonian manuscript. As it contains some points not embraced in the charter of the Orkey Guild, it is here presented, as a further means of comparison with the characters of the later craft guilds. The original is, of course, in Anglo-Saxon, and we have adopted the translation of Thorpe with the exception of a few changes. And so following is the charter of the Thanes Guild at Cambridge. Here in this writing is the declaration of the agreement which this society has resolved in the Thanes Guild at Cambridge, that then is first that each should take an oath to the others on the halidom of true fidelity before God and the world, and all the society should support him who had most right. If any guild brother die, let all the guildship bring him to where he is desired, and let him who should come thereto pay a cester of honey, and let the guildship inherit of the deceased half of farm, and let each contribute two pence to the alms, and thereof bring what is fitting to St. Atheldreth. And if any guild brother be in need of his fellow's aid, and it be made known to the fellow nearest to the guild brother, and unless the guild brother himself be nigh, the fellow neglect it, let him pay one pound. If the Lord neglect it, let him pay one pound, unless he be on the Lord's need or confined to his bed. And if anyone slay a guild brother, let there be nothing for compensation but eight pounds. But if the slayer scorns the compensation, let all the guildship avenge the guild brother, and all bear the feud. But if a guild brother do it, let all bear alike. And if any guild brother slay any man, and he be an avenger by compulsion, and compensate for his violence, and the slain be a nobleman, let each guild brother continue half a mark for his aid. If the slain be a churl, two auras peace. If he be Welsh, one aura. But if the guild brother slay any one through wantonness and with guile, let himself bear what he has wrought. And if a guild brother slay his guild brother through his own folly, let him suffer on the part of the kindred for what he has violated, and buy back his guildship with eight pounds, or forever forfeit our society and friendship. And if a guild brother eat or drink with him who slew his guild brother, unless it be before the king or the bishop of the diocese or the alderman, let him pay one pound, unless it with his two bench comrades he can deny that he knew him. If any guild brother abuse another, let him pay a cester of honey, unless he can clear himself with his two bench comrades. If a servant draw a weapon, let the Lord pay one pound, and let the Lord get what he can, and let all the guildship aid him in getting his money. And if a servant wound another, let the Lord avenge it, and all the guildship together, so that seek he whatever he may, he have not life. And if a servant sit within the storeroom, let him pay a cester of honey. And if any one have a footstool, let him do the same. And if any guild brother die out of the land or be taken sick, let his guild brethren fetch him and convey him, dead or alive, to where he may desire, under the same penalty that has been said. If he die at home, and the guild brother attend not the corpse. And let the guild brother who does not attend his morning discourse pay his cester of honey. In this agreement of an early guild, we will again notice that, through the regulations are few, they all partake of that spirit of mutual kindness which has been so plainly marked a feature of the guild organizations of all ages, and of which the Masonic Lodge is but a fuller development. The principal points worthy of notice are as follows. 1. There was an oath of fidelity. 2. The sick were to be nursed and the dead buried. 
3. A brother was bound to give aid to another brother if he were called upon. 4. If a member got into trouble or difficulty, the guild was to come to his assistance. 5. The injuries or wrongs of a member were to be taken as their own by the other members of the guild. 6. To associate knowingly with one who had done injury to a guild member was an offense calling for punishment. 7. The severest punishment that could be inflicted on a member was to be expelled from the body. These seven points embrace the true spirit of the Masonic Institution. They may be profitably compared with the medieval constitutions and with the regulations and obligations of the modern lodges. This comparison of the older and the newer constitutions may be more conveniently made. It will be necessary to anticipate the order of events in regard to the dates and times and to present the reader the ordinances of two craft guilds both of the 14th century. The first of these constitutions, though the date affixed to it makes it apparently 60 years later than the second, was really much older. Toulman Smith says that the internal evidence shows that the substance of the ordinances is older than the date given. As in the beginning, they are said to be ordinances made and of ancient time assigned and ordained by the founders of the guild. He supposes that they were first written in Latin, and that what we have now are the early translation of a lost original with some later additions and alterations. The document that we shall at this stage present to the reader, and which has been taken from Toulman Smith's English Guilds, a work containing the rules governing more than 100 of the old guilds of England, and published by the Early English Tech Society, is the Guild of the Smiths of Chesterfield. This guild, united with that of the Holy Cross of Merchants in 1387, but, as has already been said, the date of its institution must have been much earlier. The Guild of the Smiths of Chesterfield 1. This is the agreement of the Masters and Brethren of the Guild of Smiths of Chesterfield, worshipping before the greater cross in the nave of the Church of All Saints there. The headmen are an elder father, dean, steward, and four burgesses by whom oversight the guild is managed. Lights are to be found and to be burnt before the cross on days named. 2. If any brother is sick and needs help, he shall have a halfpenny daily from the common fund of the guild until he has got well. If any of them fall into want, they shall go singly, on given days, to the houses of the brethren, while each shall be courteously received, and there shall be given to him, as if he were the master of the house, whatever he wants of meat, drink, and clothing, and he shall have a halfpenny like those that are sick, and then he shall go home in the name of the Lord. 3. On the death of a brother, twelve lights shall be kept burning round the body, until buried, an offering shall be made. Round the body of a stranger, or of the son of a brother, dying in the house of a brother, four lights shall be kept burning. 4. If it befall that any of the brethren, by some hapless chance, and not through his own folly, is cast into prison, all his brethren are bound to do what they can to get him freed and to defend him. 5. If any sick brother makes a will, having first assigned or set apart by bequest his soul to God, his body to burial, and the altar gifts to the priests, he shall then not forget to leave something to the guild according to his means. 6. Whenever any one has borrowed any money from the guild, either to traffic with or for his own use, under promise to repay it on a given day, and he does not repay it, though three times worn, he shall be put under suspension, denunciation, and excommunication. All contradiction, cavil, and appeal and aside, he, until he shall have paid wholly for it. If he has been sick, the claim of the guild must be first satisfied. 
if he dies into state without leaving a lawful will, his goods shall be held bound to the guild to pay what is owing to it, and shall not be touched or disposed of until full payment has been made to the guild. Should it happen, which God forbid, that any brother is stubbornly and unruly, or sets himself against the brethren, or gainsays any of these ordinances, or being summoned to a feast will not come, or does not obey the elder father when he ought nor show him due respect, or does not abide by what has been ordained by the elder father and greater part of the guild, he shall pay a pound of wax and a half a mark. Moreover, he shall be put under suspension, denunciation, and excommunication without any contradiction, cavil, or appeal. 8. Anyone proved to be in debt or a wrongdoer shall be deemed excommunicate or outside the fold, and if he shall presume to come to the meetings of the brethren, his company shall be shunned by all, so that no brother shall dare to talk to him unless to chide him, until he has fully satisfied the elder father and the brethren, as well touching any penalty as touching the debt or wrongdoing. 9. To keep and faithfully perform these constitutions, all the brethren have bound themselves by touch of relics. Although, as its name suggests, this is a sodality or brotherhood of a body of handicraftsmen, yet there is no reference to any regulations for work. In this respect, it more resembles a social than a craft guild. This deficiency is, however, supplied in the ordinances of the Tailor's Guild at Lincoln, which is next to be given. This circumstance is one of the internal evidences that the Smith's Guild was much older than its charter purports. The Tailor's was a craft guild, and its provisions for the regulation of labor, though few, are striking and may be profitably compared with the more developed system adopted later by the Masonic craft guilds. The date of the institution of the Tailor's Guild is the year 1328. The paragraphs are here numbered for reference, as in the case of the former guild. The Tailor's Guild at Lincoln 1. All the brethren and sisters shall go in procession in the Feast of Corpus Christi. 2. None shall enter the guild as whole brother until he has paid his entry, a quarter of barley, which must be paid between Michaelmas and Christmas, and if it is not then paid, he shall pay the price of the best malt as sold at Lincoln Market on Midsummer Day, and each shall pay twelve pence to the ale. 3. If any one of the guild falls into poverty, which God forbid, and has not the means of support, he shall have every week seven pence out of the goods of the guild, out of which he must discharge such payments as become due to the guild. 4. If anyone dies within the city, without leaving the means for burial, the guild shall find the means according to the rank of him who is dead. 5. If anyone wishes to make pilgrimage to the Holy Land, each brother and sister shall give him a penny, and if to St. James or to Rome a halfpenny, and they shall go with him outside the gates of the city of Lincoln, and on his return they shall meet him and go with him to his mother church. 6. If a brother or sister dies outside the city on pilgrimage or elsewhere, and the brethren are assured of his death, they shall do for his soul what would have been done if he had died in his own parish. 7. When one of the guild dies, he shall, according to his means, bequeath five shillings or forty pence, or what he will, to the guild. 8. Every brother and sister coming into the guild shall pay to the chaplain as the others do. 9. There shall be four mourn speeches held in every year, to take order for the welfare of the guild, and whoever heeds not his summons shall pay two pounds of wax. 10. If any master of the guild takes any one to live with him as an apprentice in order to learn the work of the tailor's craft, the apprentice shall pay two shillings to the guild or his master for him, or else the master shall lose his guildship. 11. 
If any quarrel or strife arises between any brethren or sisters of the guild, which God forbid, the brethren and sisters shall, with the advice of the gracemen and wardens, do their best to make peace between the parties, provided the case is such as can be thus settled without a breach of the law. And whoever will not obey the judgment of the brethren shall lose his guildship, unless he thinks better of it within three days, and then he shall pay a stone of wax, unless he have grace." 12. On feast days, the brethren and the sisters shall have three flagons and six tankards with prayers, and the ale and the flagons shall be given to the poor who most need it. After the feast, a mass shall be said and offerings made for the souls of those who are dead. 13. Four lights shall be put round the body of any dead brother or sister until burial, and the usual services and offerings shall follow. 14. If any master of the craft keeps any lad or sewer of another master for one day after he has well known that the lad wrongly left his master, and that they had not parted in a friendly and reasonable manner, he shall pay a stone of wax. 15. If any master of the craft employs any lad as a sewer, that sewer shall pay five pence or his master for him. 16. Each brother and sister shall give every year one penny for charity when the dean of the guild demands it, and it shall be given in the place where the giver thinks it most needed, together with a bottle of ale from the store of the guild. Lastly, 17. Officers who are elected and will not serve are to pay fines. It will be seen on an inspection of these 17 ordinances that the Guild of Tailors of Lincoln combined the character of the Religious and Craft Guild. The 14th and 15th statutes regulate the conduct of the masters and the prosecution of their trade, but all the others are appropriate to the regulation of religious services, to the practice of charity, and the inculcation of friendly and fraternal relations among the members. And with that, we're going to close out this chapter, and we'll pick it up again here shortly. So, as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.